District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I am back from vacation and we have a lot to discuss this week and next week. So if you see a high volume of episodes from me, it is because I need to keep you all, dear listeners, informed of what is happening federally, culturally across state lines. Today, I'm going to focus on three specific updates. The USDA APHIS agency following backlash announced that it would revoke its wild bird game import ban. I also want to talk about the MCC codes for gun purchases going forward and the implications from that and why actually credit card companies are pretty skeptical of implementing it themselves. And we're going to top it off with an interesting story from Patagonia, the preservationist corporation that has decided to make Earth their sole shareholder. Interesting development there. We'll talk about some of Patagonia's actions, why I think they do a lot of virtue signaling, and why I actually think this move to make Earth the sole shareholder is actually rooted more so in taxes than actually saving the planet. So stay with me, and we will break down these stories today. USDA APHIS in a swift reversal following backlash from duck organizations, hunters, conservationists, decided that they will now actually allow harvested wild bird game imports from Canada into the United States. I will read for you the statement, Allowance of Hunter Harvested Wild Bird Game Carcasses from Canada. APIS has been working with stakeholders and other federal agencies to provide options for importing hunter harvested wild bird meat carcasses that address the highly pathogenic avian influenza that address the transmission risk to our domestic poultry. Effective September 12th, APES will allow the import of hunter-harvested wild bird meat carcasses as outlined below. Unprocessed hunter-harvested wild bird game carcasses originating from or transiting Canada must meet the following conditions, and there are five conditions laid out. And they recommend that Boots and any equipment used to process carcasses should be clean and visibly free from dirt, blood, tissue, and feces. Cooked or cured meat and meat products, sausage, jerky, etc. will not be allowed. Import as U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service requirements cannot be met to identify the species of wild bird. And Delta Waterfowl praised the move in response to this. And I will link to you guys the show notes where you can find it. But all the duck organizations are very happy. And if you need some context on this and why this became controversial, go back to a previous episode that I just did on this very topic. But it was a swift reversal from the Biden administration. I don't know if we're going to see similar policies that severely restrict hunting and fishing be reversed as quickly as this was. But this is an example of making your voice heard, leaning on hunting organizations, conservation organizations to Communicate your dismay with bad policy as it relates to conservation. This is a very rare win that we're seeing right now. I worry that through lawsuits and other bureaucratic, let's say, means, they're going to codify policy, and we're already seeing this with lead tackle and ammunition bullets, more on that later, that are going to be codified and harder to repeal unless similar public disagreement 
is communicated and put out there. So a rare, rare praise of this administration here on the podcast to swiftly revoke this really bad policy. And if you need more, if you want responses from the duck organizations from USDA APHIS, we'll include it in the show notes, but a rare positive light here if you hunt in Canada and you wish to bring back imported birds to the States. I have to weigh in on these new merchant codes for you guys. This is something that came out when I was on vacation, just as I was about to start vacation. The merchant category code updates for gun retailers was published and the three major credit card companies, Visa, American Express, and MasterCard have said they're going to go along with this. And I want to read for you what the International Organization of Standardization, that is so Orwellian, the iOS, and what these new MCCs mean and how they will impact your gun purchasing habits going forward. CNBC writes that the creation of this new merchant code following pressure from gun control activists who say it'll help track suspicious weapons purchases. While they are complying, Visa has said that it'll be extremely hard to enforce because these are lawful products. And Visa's statement in response to adopting the iOS's new merchant codes, they have a blog post and you can find it in the show notes, Protecting Legal Commerce. Over the past week, much has been said about the role of payment companies in facilitating transactions and what role we should play, if any, in tracking cardholder purchases. We wanted to share Visa's perspective on this important topic. As background last week, the International Organization for Standardization, ISO, a global standard-setting organization, decided to establish a new merchant category code, MCC, for, quote, gun and ammunition stores, end quote. Many misunderstand what this means and are, in turn, advocating the use of MCCs to, quote, track, end quote, gun sales as a potential tool in combating gun violence. That's not what merchant codes are designed for, nor should they be. MCCs already exist for hundreds of different businesses, including beauty salons, bookstores, newsstands, bowling alleys, and bakeries, among many others. They are four-digit category codes only used to classify the type of business a retailer operates. However, MCCs do not give Visa or any other payment network visibility into product-level data known as SKU-level data. When we process a transaction, we have no visibility into what items a consumer is purchasing. This is true irrespective of which MCC applies to a merchant. We do not believe private companies should serve as moral arbiters. That's a great concession. Asking private companies to decide what legal products or services can or cannot be bought and from what store sets a dangerous precedent. Further, it would be an invasion of consumers' privacy for banks and payment networks to know each of our most personal purchasing habits. Visa is firmly against this. As we do when ISO creates a new merchant code, Visa adopts the standards that apply to our industry. For us, that means working with our financial institution clients to enable them to implement this new MCC when ISO makes it available. You can read the entirety of the statement for yourself. What I had read about the application of these new MCC codes is that actually they can be circumvented by big box retailers like Cabela's and Bass Pro, and actually they, don't, they won't be applied to those. They'll still be listed as general merchandise. So that's one interesting thing that they're not gun control advocates are not being transparent about. Moreover, if the companies are hesitant to go through with this and they've not responded to comment from different people like Steven Gutowski of the reload and have been mum on this, maybe it's going to generate a lot of blowback to which they will reconsider these codes. And they're going to find that when you apply these codes, when you're trying to circumvent Congress, who 
Congress hasn't been able to pass gun control. And again, there's not really an appetite to pass it despite all the public opinion polling showing it, although it is mixed at best about the appetite for gun control because you've seen a historic number of people purchasing firearms and getting their concealed carry licenses. So they're trying to use the means of the private sector to punish lawful gun owners and purchasers of guns and ammunition through these means. Will these new MCCs have an impact on curbing crime? I don't see it that way. If you look at the DOJ's studies on criminal usage of firearms, most of the time, 90 some odd percent of the time, give or take, criminals are obtaining guns from the black market. They're not going to a retailer. They're not going to a gun store to purchase a gun. Someone wouldn't do that. Sometimes criminals, unfortunately, have bought guns through these regular retailers. It's sometimes hard to identify a criminal if a person has no record and they decide to go commit an act, but that's very rare. But I don't see this really having an impact on curbing crime. It would be nice if prosecutors and others who have the power to keep criminals who have committed crimes with guns behind bars, not releasing them early, that'll do more of a measurable impact on reducing crime instead of going after people and caving to gun control interests to curb lawful purchases. That's what these gun control groups do. They're not serious about addressing crime. They don't say anything about criminals being released early who have committed crimes with guns. They say that they're restoring their rights to them, but they turn a blind eye to them. So a lot of hypocrisy there. And you find that a lot of people who scream the loudest about gun control tend to be implicated in that too, in many cases, or very unserious about reducing crime, but rather reducing our ability to purchase guns lawfully. And so I don't see these MCC codes having really much of an impact. It's just a virtue signal and to make it harder for people to purchase guns lawfully. So they want to use the private sector in this manner. You see banking institutions do this too. Before ESG came about, this environmental, social, and governance movement, you saw political pressure applied to financial institutions, Citibank and a few others, to discriminate against firearms companies and ammunition companies too, to restrict their ability to bank at certain banks, to have access to different financial services, to basically bar them altogether, boycott them, although they have nothing to do with crime. So this is not surprising that gun control groups are applying political pressure on gun companies because that's the only thing they can do because Congress thankfully cannot pass and doesn't want to pass gun control. Although we did see Republicans cave to that really bad bill earlier this summer. I was not in support of that. I don't think it'll have any measurable impact. But generally speaking, Anything beyond that, although that was a bad gesture, will not pass as Congress currently makes up. And I think if Republicans take over, you will see a lack of an appetite even more to pass gun control if Republicans recapture both chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate. So that remains to be seen. But you won't see anything passed. They may try executive orders. They're trying to do that through the ATF. But by using the private sector to undermine lawful commerce, it can be easily refuted and fought back. And I think the credit card companies will see the error in their ways with having to abide by these ISO standards, I would hope. And even Visa conceded, as I had mentioned, Visa conceded that they don't want to be in the business of tracking private sales, the innermost private transactions of people. They don't want to have to go through that data to be submissive to gun control interests because that's what these groups want to do. They want to say, okay, let's extract information from you companies and let's target our opponents. And again, it won't have any impact on criminals who use guns because again, they're not going to stores. They're buying it off the black market. You need the DOJ study. I've included it in the show notes for you guys to listen. 
But MCC codes, gun control, not going to have an impact. It's just going to make it a lot more inconvenient for those of you, especially in gun control states or states that have started to slowly peel back on bad policy. It'll make it harder for those of you there to get guns in a more timely fashion, especially if you have an urgent need to buy one. The third story I have for you today, we're going to cap it off in a humorous way, is Patagonia CEO has claimed that Earth is now the sole shareholder of the company. The very virtuous, very altruistic company called Patagonia. They're a climbing supply store. They make luxury jackets, stuff for outdoor leisure, some fly fishing stuff. I've heard their products are great. I just am very turned off by their political messaging and their virtue signaling, and I think I'm not alone in this. But let's read for you guys what Patagonia has to say about their decision to basically surrender all of their proceeds for planet Earth. CEO Yvonne Chouinard, who happens to be, I think if I remember correctly, he was a Bernie bro, and he is quoted as saying he's not very fond of being a businessman. And he writes in this letter, Earth is now our only shareholder. And he talks about that they started as a B Corps organization, the California Benefit Corporation, and then writing their values into their corporate charter. And now they don't want to be about making a profit. And they said that they would, they had an option to sell Patagonia and donate all the money, but we couldn't be sure that our new owner would maintain our values or keep our team of people around the world employed. They rejected going public, saying he says that what a disaster that would have been. Even public companies with good intentions are under too much pressure to create short-term gain at the expense of long-term viability and responsibility. Truth be told, there were no good available options. So we created our own. Instead of going public, you could say we're going purpose. Instead of extracting value from nature and transforming it into wealth for investors, we'll use the wealth Patagonia creates to protect the source of all wealth. Here's how it works. 100% of the company's voting stock transfers to the Patagonia Purpose Trust, created to protect the company's values. And 100% of the non-voting stock had been given to the Holdfast Collective, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting the environmental crisis and defending nature. The funding will come from Patagonia. Each year, the money we make, after reinvesting in the business, will be distributed as a dividend to help fight the crisis. It's been nearly 50 years since we began our experiment in responsible business, and we're just getting started. If we have any hope of a thriving planet, much less a thriving business, 50 years from now, it is going to take all of us doing what we can with the resources we have. This is another way we've found to do our part. Despite its immensity, the Earth's resources are not finite, and it's clear we've exceeded its limits, but it's also resilient. We can save our planet if we commit to it. And he ends it there. Patagonia is free to engage like this. They're a private company. They can do whatever the heck they want. But I'm more convinced that this is rooted in tax purposes, not having to fork over money to the IRS, because who wants to pay corporate taxes? I don't think many companies do, and they have a right to not want to pay so much in taxes, but they, they are largely compliant. I would think a lot of people love to hate on corporations. Corporations can do a lot of damage. I think this is what making Earth the primary shareholder of Patagonia is aimed at. But I want to talk about four things that have really irked me about Patagonia and why I think this is an insincere gesture. Again, they're free to do this, but I call into question their good faith effort here because everyone's saying this is so great. Other companies have to follow, but Patagonia falls in line with a lot of these so-called woke corporations. What they're doing now, 
Patagonia's chief executive officer, Ryan Gellert, said on LinkedIn, why we're celebrating our new ownership today, this is not woke capitalism. It's the future of business if we want to build a better world for our children and all other creatures. We're turning capitalism on its head by making the earth our only shareholder. I don't think capitalism needs to be reinvented. And if Patagonia wants to engage in woke capitalism, they're free to do it, but they're not free of criticism. And I have four examples of this that I want to highlight for you all about why I think this is merely virtue signaling and why their political machinations are mostly just to get attention and to foster outrage without having any impact on the environment. And rather, they act as obstacles to true conservation. 2020, a recent example they make no qualms about hating about 50% of the country. They had a tag on their merchandise called Vote the A-Holes Out. It's Yvonne Chouinard's comeback to climate change deniers, and this is in GQ. Twitter went wild over a photograph of the backside of a Patagonia tag, and it read, Vote the A-Holes Out. It seemed too good to be true, a little bit of resistance fantasy, but Patagonia has been one of the most vocal brands in consumer culture when it comes to politicians' inability to take climate change seriously. Suing the Trump administration to protect national monuments and donating its tax-cut cash to environmental groups. That approach now applies to their actual clothes that was mentioned here. I've talked at length about this. Patagonia, if you guys recall, this is the second story, second instance, I think, of them overstepping their bounds as a company in my opinion, turning off about half of the country. Patagonia had put out an ad that said, President Trump stole your lands. Completely bungling what the 2017 Review of National Monuments was, how it wanted to call into question not abusing the Antiquities Act of 1906, which administers the overseeing and designation of monuments. We've long argued here and pointed to different sources, even preservationist environmental sources, left-leaning sources like the Brookings Institution that said that presidents actually do have the authority to shrink monuments, not only expand them. There were five presidents who did it aside from President Trump. And the conclusion of that National Monument review from then-Secretary Zinke was that the Midnight Order monuments, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, which were created in the first case of Bears Ears or expanded in the case of Grand Staircase Escalante, those monuments were shrinked. They were not eradicated by any means. They were just shrunk to small compatible parcel sizes as enumerated by the Antiquities Act of 1906. That law is due to be modernized and you're going to see, I think, over the shared cooperation between Bears Ears, that deal that came out be challenged on the court of law, how Utah may prevail in that because they have a case to say that the Antiquities Act is being overstepped by the Biden administration. And we don't have checks currently on presidential authority to enlarge or decrease national monuments. So that law is due to overchange. But Patagonia, of course, naturally completely misinterpreted and distorted what the law does. And they said President Trump stole land, although he is credited with actually his administration rather is credited with opening the most acres to new hunting and fishing opportunities. Although this administration, Biden administration claims it is, but they're not. Uh, But last administration did open up access and you didn't see one acre, in my understanding, transferred from the federal government to the private sector as a lot of so-called public lands advocates claim. He expanded upon access and nothing was lost. And now you see in this administration, your ability to hunt and fish is being jeopardized. You're not going to have access to certain places if you're in Alaska and you want to hunt caribou. 60 million acres cut off to you if you're not a resident of Alaska. 
you see that now they're trying to impose lead tackle bullets bans on fish and wildlife service lands more on that later in the coming weeks in the coming days rather and yeah patagonia completely got this issue wrong so we've corrected the record i have called into question that glitzy campaign from 2017 they're also hypocrites when it comes to third story third point rather their use of fossil fuels they say fossil fuels are evil and they need to divest from fossil fuels but a little inconvenient fact for patagonia lovers out there that company your beloved company makes a lot of products using petroleum byproducts those fancy jackets i think are made from petroleum byproducts and this company refuses to do any business with oil and gas companies they got into the news because they said we will not make company jackets or company vet sweater vests for you guys because you guys are engaged in oil and gas and it's evil and you're harming the planet yada 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 there's a story i can link to in the show notes for that i'm not making this up out of thin air but a lot of their hypocrisy has been called into question and fourth i would say the most one of the most egregious egregious things they've ever done and they're, again they're free to make propaganda films they're free to make their voices heard i'm not calling for them to be disbanded or anything or to have their free speech revoked i'm not calling for any of that i am just calling their efforts into question their documentary artificial which came out a few years ago i was curious to watch it so i was coming back from montana i saw that the documentary was available for viewing and i decided to watch it I decided to watch it with an open mind. And so I did my best to watch it. And I came away watching that documentary, kind of confirming my opinions of the company, that they're disingenuous, that they really don't care about true conservation. They're really elitist and they want to preserve like a preservationist environmentalist ethos that if you don't think like them, then you're not entitled to go outdoors to public lands. That's a lot of what these preservationist groups do, whether they're privately held companies or nonprofit organizations, a la Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, et cetera, et cetera. And I watched this as a recreational angler, and I came away angry from this because they were distorting what state wildlife hatcheries do, the good work that these hatcheries do, and discounting the excise taxes generated from fishing tackle, from fishing licenses, saying that taxpayers don't know what their money is going to to fund these these awful efforts of hatcheries da 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 and so i found a great review a critical review of artificial from an english gentleman at fly and fish fish and fly magazine and he pointed out a lot of hypocritical points from patagonia itself a lot of distortion by the company in this documentary and he said that the film, of course, was funded by Patagonia, named for a region of South America famous for the best sea trout rivers in the world. The movie presents a powerful case for closing hatcheries and shutting fish farms in the belief that the genetic integrity of hatchery fish is harmed in the process, which, when you look at the bigger picture, is rather ironic. Those Patagonian sea trout were not indigenous to the region and were introduced from the UK, as were all the brown trout in New Zealand, Australia, the Himalayas, the USA, and Canada. They got to those countries and thrived due to dot 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 hatcheries. There is no such thing as wild sea trout in these countries. They all came from hatchery reared eggs, an inconvenient truth for artificial and Patagonia. He says that they also lean on economic arguments 
used in the movie to criticize Hatchery use, creative accounting, and exaggeration are neatly and authoritatively slipped into the soundtrack, telling us that reared salmon are, quote, paid for by the taxpayers and that it's a waste of their money. And hatchery fish are costing $61,000 per harvested fish. No mention that fishing supports over a million jobs and adds between $100 and $200 billion a year to the U.S. economy, or that nearly 40 million, I think it's closer to 50, maybe 60 million, licenses are sold in the U.S. each year. Go check out that review if you don't believe me. But those are four points, and there are so many other examples of where I think Patagonia makes a lot of noise. They certainly know how to fill their bottom line. They're not immune from enjoying the benefits of capitalism. They're still going to make a profit. They claim that, oh, no, we have no profit margin, and we have no prioritization of making a profit in mind. They are. When they do these stunts, they're making money. So their reimagining of capitalism They can go through with it, but they're not immune from criticism. And that's what we're free to do here in this country is to freely criticize those we think who are dishonest. And Patagonia, unfortunately, is one of these dishonest brokers in conservation. They're preservationists. They want to make you believe otherwise. You may disagree with my assessment, but just these four examples that I've alluded to, I think they are causing more disruption than cohesion. Agree, disagree? Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.